Well, I have a confession to make for you guys. Uh, I did not follow all of the Marvel superhero movies in detail. So I know for some of you that's shocking because you have like a little notebook where you keep all of the characters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, That was not me. So uh, I watched the very first one of the new Marvel series back in 2008, Iron Man, and I I enjoyed it, but uh, I didn't watch really many of the others for the next decade until this past summer, a friend of mine said, hey, would you like to go see Avengers Endgame with me? So because he was a friend, I said, sure, I'll go. And I said something like, uh, I'm not sure I'll understand what's going on because I haven't seen all the others. Oh, you'll be fine. You'll be good, right? So uh, we went to the movie and it started with a shot of Iron Man, right? So I'm like, okay, so far so good. I know who this guy is, but he was in a spaceship in the middle of space and I didn't know how he got there. Uh, he was with a blue person and I didn't know why he was with a blue person or who the blue person was. Or how she got blue, actually. And so there were a lot of questions, right? And then, but you know, but, but the truth is that the basic plot line I was able to follow pretty well. It's just that more and more characters kept appearing. Uh, in fact, I read in an article uh, this past week that in the movie Endgame, there are 76 Avengers characters, 76 people over the course of the previous 21 movies. Now, I have three kids. I have a difficult time sometimes remembering their names. Uh, I did not know who most of these people were, right? So I'm like, okay, I I know who Captain America is. I know who the Incredible Hulk is, who last time I saw him, he was Lou Ferrigno, but whatever, like we're kind of We've changed things up, right? So, so I get the main characters, but then there's all these other people that keep appearing and all these other plot lines and there were inside jokes and people would laugh and I'd be like, I, I don't know what's happening, right? So I subsequently have had to go back and kind of watch some of the others to at least understand what was going on, right? But well, the great thing was I went to the movie with a friend who sat next to me and periodically I would be able to lean over and go, who is that person, right? And they would lean back and they would tell me, why is she blue, right? She just is, right? Or whatever. Like, it's just the way, the way that it goes, right? So I had that guy sitting next to me that could help me understand a story that I had jumped into right in midstream, right? That's really the problem. I jumped into this story really at the end, right? But, but kind of right in the middle. Now, I share that because this morning we are jumping into the middle of a story, We're starting a new series. It's called Kingdom of Priests, and we're going to preach through the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy this semester. So we're going to look at the last four books of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the name for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, If you know much about the Bible, of course, you know that Genesis is the first one, right? So we're starting in Exodus 1. One of the reasons for that is several years ago, we preached through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a huge story, and so we can't really do that in the same semester as we do Exodus through Deuteronomy. Right? The, the other reason is just because there's so much material in these four books, we're not even going to really be able to scratch the surface of everything in there. So we're jumping in in the middle of the stream. And I know for some of you, you may be like, man, I just read the book of Genesis. I know who all the people are. If you say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whatever, I know who they are. I know what's going on. I know how they landed in Egypt. 
right? But there may be others of you that you say, I'm jumping in kind of cold, right? It may be that, that you have not read the Bible a whole lot, or at least not read it a lot recently, and so your memory of the book of Genesis could be a little bit rusty. So what I want to do this morning is I want to be that guy who sits next to you in the movie and I say, here's who these characters are. Here's how we got to this place, right? So when you're like, why are they blue? I'm going to go because they're slaves, right? And things like that. So uh, we will walk through some of who these people are and how they got to where they got. And the reason I want to do that is really because this is a, an amazing story. Okay, this is a powerful story, even more powerful than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even more powerful than Avengers, because we have a God who is writing an astounding story of how he's going to take a group of people who are really just a a little family at first, and he's going to transform them into a nation, into a kingdom who will display his character and his glory and his love to all the nations of the earth. So that what we see going on in Exodus through Deuteronomy is essentially this. God is building a kingdom of people, right? Or a kingdom of priests to represent him here on the earth. Now I mentioned we're calling this kingdom of priests. The reason is, if you think about what did a priest do? Well, it was a priest's job essentially to help people know God, to help people worship God, right? So the priests were at the tabernacle or at the temple and they would receive your offerings and offer them up to God. They would teach you how to worship God, how to know God. So a priest is kind of a mediator, right? And what we're going to see is that in the book of Exodus... God is is designing or building a group of people, a kingdom. He's taking this family. He's making them into a nation or a kingdom of people. And he says, what I want you to do, I want you to be people, all of you, right? Not just those of you who are technically priests. I want all of you to be a whole kingdom of priests, right? That, That their job would be to live in the midst of the land that God had given them. And to help people know God and help people worship God, not just in Israel, but but ultimately to all of the nations on earth, right? And here's the really powerful thing about this story is that eventually this story of the nation of Israel will intersect with our story. Okay, and here's how that happens is that out of the nation of Israel, God is going to raise up a king, Jesus, our Savior, who will perfectly represent God's character and God's goodness and God's love. Jesus is the ultimate priest between us and God. And here's what happens is eventually you and I, who are members of all the nations on the earth, we connect to Jesus. And therefore we connect to this story that God has been writing since the beginning of creation that included Israel, that includes those of us who know Jesus Christ. So that now, as we get to the New Testament, Peter would say it this way. He says, you are, right? You are, those of you who know Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is, you and I have the privilege of being a kingdom of priests because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that now we are those people 
who get to mediate the blessings of God to all of the world as we share about who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. We now are a kingdom of priests. But as we look at the story of Israel and as we look at our story this morning, the other thing I want to point out is this. We're we're really still in the middle of the story. Right, So when you're in the middle of a story, if you turn on one of those movies right in the middle, there's still going to be tension, right? There's still going to be conflict. There's still going to be unresolved problems. You know that the ending is going to turn out okay. But for the people in the middle of the story, it can feel very scary and uncertain. Right, so we're going to see that in the nation of Israel. We're going to see that in our lives, just like us, the people of Israel, they had certain promises from God, right? God had told them, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you so much blessing that you will be able to bless all the nations on the earth. That's what I'm going to do. But when we join them here in the book of Exodus, that's not where they are. They're in the middle of a story that at the moment isn't going very well for them. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I know I've felt like that. That I look at the promises of God in the scripture and I go, yeah, man, I know someday, someday a kingdom is coming where sin will be overturned. People won't disobey God. People won't act toward one another out of selfishness and violence and hatred. Death will be overturned. And those who know Jesus will rise again and worship him forever, right? I know all of these promises, but right now, right now, I'm struggling. Right now, I'm in the middle of a story that doesn't look great for me. Maybe you're in the room this morning and you're in the middle of a story where your marriage is struggling or you feel it's falling apart. Maybe you're in the middle of a story where you have high hopes for your children And you don't see how those are going to play out. At least not in this life. You're in the middle of a story where your career is not where you hoped it would be, where your grades are not where you hoped they would be, where your health is not where you want it to be. And you say, I'm in the middle of this story. What do I know about God? Where is God? Where are his promises? And what good are they to me today? That's where we find the nation of Israel as we open the book of Exodus. And what I want to do before we leave this morning is I want to to remind us what is true about God in those moments, even in the middle of the story, when the story looks dark and uncertain. If you would, if you've got your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 1 with me. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, 
Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. So we find ourselves at the beginning of the book of Exodus in a, in a bad place. God's people are in trouble. They're not in a good spot. And I want to refresh for a minute how we got here. What we're looking at is there's a family of 70 people who had somehow made their way from Canaan, from the promised land, over to Egypt. And the, the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes, they're listed right here at the beginning of Exodus. Joseph is listed as well. It says he was already there. I want to remind you for a minute of how we how we got here. You have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 in order to understand a little bit of this. Remember, after the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11, all the nations of the earth are scattered. They begin to speak different languages, right? So, so all the people of the earth, they scatter into different nations and different tongues. And God reaches down and he selects one guy. His name is Abram, later to be Abraham. And he says, hey, Abram, here's what I want you to do. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, right? So God had chosen this guy. We don't know why, but he chooses Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to turn you into this great and fantastic nation. You're going to have a land to live on. You're going to have lots of descendants. And I'm going to bless you so much that all of the blessings you receive will actually spread out to all the nations on earth. This is a huge promise, right? But Abraham lives and dies and doesn't really see the fulfillment of this promise, right? Remember, Abraham, he had two sons. The, the son who inherited this promise is his son Isaac. Abraham dies as a very old man. Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old. And then Abraham dies. But when he dies, he doesn't have a giant group of descendants. He's got two guys. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob eventually has 12 sons who become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of those 12 tribes, we have Joseph. And so what we see is this, that somewhere around 2000 BC, a little bit before there, uh, God calls Abraham. Abraham leaves where he is. He goes to Canaan on the strength of God's promise, right? God says, hey, Abram, I'm going to give you all of these fantastic things, right? So he goes to Canaan. A couple hundred years later, his great-grandson, Joseph, you, you remember the story, Joseph's brothers, delightful siblings that they were, sold him into slavery where Joseph found his way to Egypt, serving under a man named Potiphar. 
one of the officials of Pharaoh. Eventually, he gets falsely accused of rape. He goes to jail for a while. He gets out of jail. He gets elevated to the greatest, second greatest position in all of the kingdom, right under Pharaoh, right? So here's Joseph. He's gone from the lowest point to the highest point. And then there's a famine, and Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because there's grain in Egypt to eat. Right, And you have this great story where they show up in Egypt. They don't recognize him at first. Eventually, Joseph shows them who he is, and he establishes for them a place to live. So right around 1876, so Joseph is in Egypt for a couple of decades before his brothers and his father join him. They go to Egypt, and they grow, and they multiply so that a little over 100 years after that, there's a brand new Pharaoh. He doesn't know who Joseph is. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't recognize their God. And he just looks around and he goes, hey, there's a group of people who don't look like us, who are getting very strong and they're growing. Let's make them slaves so they won't take over. And yet they continue to multiply and they continue to grow and God continues to bless them. 1526 BC is probably around when Moses is born. And then we're going to talk about the Exodus in future weeks, probably 1446 B.C., when Moses is about 80 years old, right? But right now, where we are is we're right at the beginning of this story where God has promised these people something that has not yet happened, right? Now, I want you to think about this. Think of all the years. You can look at them on a chart like this, and you go, yeah, I got the dates. But I want you to look at the gaps between these dates. 1730, they're enslaved. 1446, they leave from Egypt. You know what that means? There were generations that were born into slavery. They lived in slavery and they died in slavery. And then their kids were born into slavery and lived in slavery and died in slavery on and on and on for hundreds of years, right? And so you have these people that say, we've got the promise of God. So where is he? How does the promise of God relate to my life right now, enslaved in a land far from home. They had a couple of problems. One is they weren't in their own homeland, right? They were living on somebody else's property. I don't know if you've ever rented a home or an apartment. Most of us have at some point. And yet the statistics would say that 72% of those who are renting a home say they would like to buy a home, right? And maybe if you own a home, you might be going, Maybe you don't want to do that, right? Because when you own the home, you're responsible, aren't you? You got to mow the lawn. The AC breaks, there's nobody to call and nobody else to pay but you. And yet most people still want that because they want a place of their own. And here's this family, God had said, you're, you're going to have a place of your own. And they say, when? How? How's that going to happen? enslaved in a foreign land. Of course, their other problem is they're slaves. They have no power. Other than the power of God with them, they have no power. Right? And so, so the, the writer of Hebrews, when he talks about this generation, the generation of Abraham and the patriarchs, and then those who are in Egypt, he said, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What is the author of Hebrews getting at? He's saying, look, they had this promise of an earthly land, but really what they were wanting was they were wanting to know that they would be part of a kingdom that would last forever with their God. And yet here they are, they're, they're enslaved, they're in trouble. They're in the middle of a story that doesn't look that great. And again, in that respect, I don't think they're that much different from us. One of the things that strikes me is the reality that we may never understand while we are alive, why our lives go the way they go. Right, again, there were Israelites born, lived, died in slavery. If my hope is that the problems in my life will be worked out in this life, I'm going to be disappointed because that's not where the scripture takes us. Right, but what we're going to see is that God is writing a story in their nation and through them that while it includes them, it's not about them. Right, while it includes them, it's not about them. Right, but instead, what God is doing is he's saying, I want to write a story where I create a, a kingdom of people who learn how to trust me even when it's dark, who learn how to trust me even when they cannot see the road ahead. Even when they're oppressed by foreign nations, they learn that God is still greater. Even when they're lost in Egypt, even when they're lost in the wilderness, they trust God. This would be critical for them down the line. Even in the darkness, do I trust the promise? So, th so the people of God are in trouble. But here's what we see. God is still present. God is still present. In fact, the book of Exodus tells us this from the very beginning. I want to show you something that if you're reading carefully, you will see in the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. Chapter 1, verse 20. God was kind to them, that is to the midwives who protected these Hebrew babies. We'll talk about them in just a moment. God gave them families. You notice that all the way through this, what's interesting is one thing they don't have is a fertility problem. Okay, right? So Pharaoh tries everything that he can do to try to squish them. First, he says, I'm going to make them work so hard that there is no time, no energy, no strength for baby making. And then, then when that doesn't work, he says, here's what I'm going to do next. I'm just going to have them killed. And that doesn't work. And then he says, I'm going to order them, just throw the baby boys in the, in the Nile. And guess what? That doesn't work. No matter what Pharaoh tries to do, his plans are thwarted because God continues to multiply the people of Israel. Chapter 2, God heard them. God looked on them. God was concerned about them as they cried out in their slavery. God heard them. God saw them, and God cared. Can't think of a better way to summarize the presence of God right in the midst of their pain. What does the presence of God do? The presence of God reminds them that evil and injustice won't always win. Uh, when I was in junior high, 
I played tennis for a while. I only played through junior high because I was not good enough to make the high school team. There were some really good kids, but when I was in, uh, in junior high, I, I played some local tournaments in my area, right? So one day I was playing in the first round of a local tournament, and I happened to play this kid that it was like his skill level was like a 12-year-old Roger Federer. The kid was just unbelievable. I couldn't seem to get a game off of him. Every serve was unbelievably accurate and fast. Every shot was right where it needed to be. But not only was he really good, he was very unsportsmanlike, right? His talent was like Federer. His attitude was John McEnroe, right? So this kid is playing against me. And what was interesting was he's beating me like five to zero in the first set. And I scored a point. And he threw his racket and started crying. And I thought, man, like you still got a lot of more points than I got. I feel like crying. I'm not crying. Right? You can, you can handle this. Right? Every point that he lost. And then what, you know what happened next is I would hit a shot to the other side that I could see from my side was clearly in. And he'd call it out, right? See, one of the things in these amateur tournaments for kids is there's not always a line judge standing right there on the court. So they trust 12-year-old children to make wise decisions, <laughs> honest decisions. You know, and I thought, man, that's not right. Like, I know I'm going to lose, but I at least want to be credited with like the four points that I actually am going to get in this match. So I exercised the option that every player had, and that is I, I went up to the, the little line judge booth that was all the way across this complex, and I said, hey, can I get a line judge to come down to my match and just referee the rest of it? And so this line judge came down and began to walk with me. You know what was interesting was as he began to walk down to the court with me, I already felt better. Right? I knew I was still going to lose, but I felt better, and here's why. Because I knew that there would not be just unmitigated cheating going on anymore. I knew that the moment of reckoning, if it didn't come immediately, it was going to come. There was going to be somebody there that saw me and saw him, that saw all the points and saw what happened and could judge. Just his presence gave me more strength. I didn't play any better, but I felt better. And he actually acted a whole lot better, right? All of a sudden, he was a great gentleman. Nicely placed shot, sir. Well done, right? All of a sudden, <laughs> he turned into a perfect gentleman because the presence of the judge reminded us that justice would be done. All the way through the beginning of the book of Exodus, we're reminded, hey, God's there. He sees him. He knows what's happening. He hasn't gone dark. He hasn't left. As you read through the story of the people of Israel, you're going to see the presence of God is one of the critical themes. As they wandered in the wilderness, during the day there was a pillar of cloud that represented the presence of God. They didn't go anywhere until that cloud moved. At night, it was a pillar of fire. They didn't go anywhere until that pillar of fire or pillar of cloud moved ahead of them. When they got into the land and eventually established a temple in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided, 
The, the great thing about the Ark of the Covenant was not the gold. It was not how beautiful it was. It was not the magic of Aaron's rod. It was the presence of God. The presence of God resided in the temple. In fact, one of the saddest scenes in all of the Old Testament is when the people of God for hundreds of years rebel against God and they're going to be sent into exile and the presence of God departs from the temple and goes away. While the presence of God was with them, they had strength and they had hope. This theme works its way into the Psalms, passage many of you are familiar with, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you, wherever you are. Heaven, earth, east, west, dark, light. God is present. And the presence of God reminds us, in the midst of wherever we are, the presence of God says the day of reckoning is coming. The day is coming when injustice will be destroyed. The day is coming when violence will give way to eternal peace. The day is coming when sin will be demolished, Satan will be vanquished, and death will be defeated. The day is coming, and you can know it today because the presence of God is still with us. If you know Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. And the presence of God still goes with His people before and behind. So even in the darkness, God was still present. But secondly, God is still working. God is still working. And I want to show a couple of ways that God was working in the midst of this darkness. First of all, he's working through his people. Look with me at verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? I love their response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. In other words, Pharaoh, you got some weak women. Why? The Hebrew women are strong. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now, I'm going to keep going for a minute. Look at this. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. 
Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Let me stop there for just a minute. We're going to go into more of that story next week. But here's the point I want to make. Even in the midst of this darkness, there were faithful men and women of God. And there's a reason these midwives' names are given to us. Right? Otherwise, they're not kings, they're not priests, they're not anybody particularly important. But, but when Moses writes the book of Exodus, he says, I want you to know their names. Because these two women were exceedingly brave and they were faithful to God. And here's what they said is, we know that God has promised us something. That he's going to multiply our people. And he's going to make us a nation greater than the sands on the seashore. And he's going to give us a land and blessing. We know that. So how could we go against what God is planning by trying to cut off that promise before it even gets started? So they refuse. And in fact, they even stand before Pharaoh himself. And they say, we won't do it. And so even in the midst of the darkness, God is working through his people. And then you have this this Levite woman who has a son whose name becomes Moses. And similarly, she says, I'm not going to go against what God has promised and I'm not going to take my son's life. And so she hides him just to give him a chance. Because in every generation, no matter how dark it is, there are men and women that God calls and he says, I just want you to be faithful. Right? You, you don't know how the story of your individual life is going to turn out. But see, they didn't know that either. What they knew was how God's story was going to turn out. Right? And here's what they decided. Is they said, I want to be on the right side of God's story. And so God is working through faithful people who just say, wherever you've placed me, God, whatever circumstances I find myself in, pain in my family. Imagine the pain of Moses' parents. Pain in my job, with my health, in my relationships. Wherever you find yourself, God calls you to be faithful, to represent him, to represent his interests and his character. Even in the darkness, God is working through his people. People like you and me. And then God is working for his people. I've mentioned this as we've walked through, but one of the clearest instances or uh, one of the clearest evidences for this is the fact that the nation of Israel just keeps growing. They just keep multiplying, right? At the beginning of the book of Exodus, it is said that there are 70 of the family of Joseph who went into Egypt. By the time we get to the point of the Exodus Exodus itself, there are 600,000 males of military age. That probably means there are closer to 2 million people who depart from Egypt in the nation of Israel. So they go from a little family to a giant nation because God was working for them, even in the darkness. We also see God beginning to raise up a deliverer named Moses, who's going to lead them out of Egypt and lead them in the wilderness and right up to the border of the promised land. God never stops working. God never stops working. Even when you're asleep, even when you can't work, even when you are afraid. Many years ago, when our oldest daughter was about 
two and a half, three years old. For Christmas one year, she got one of those little wooden kitchens. And this was a small one, just a little toy kitchen. It was about this high, maybe about you know, this wide and deep. Not very big, but it had about 18,000 pieces that I was required to assemble. Right? All of you have gotten those boxes and, and you open it up and you go, how can something so small require so much assembly? Right, so I, I open up the box, I pull out all the pieces, I'm in this playroom at the back of our house, and I begin to assemble this thing. And as I begin to assemble it, every few minutes she would come over and go, is it almost done? Right? I'd be like, no, it is not close to done. It will be done. One day, I promise you, it will be done. And then she would come back, is it almost done? When will it be done? What can I? She actually at one point was like, can I help? Right? Can I help? And so I said, you can Do you remember the song, have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry? She said, yes. I go, sing that while I work, right? So so she did. She began to sing it. She's actually standing over there, have patience. And she's thinking, I can see the wheels turning, like this isn't making it go faster. (laughs) This is just something dad is doing for me, right? Now, eventually, I'm still working on it. She had to go take a nap, right? So she goes and takes a nap, and guess what? I'm still working on it. Through her nap while she's asleep. She gets up from nap, and I think by then I finally had it just about done. Right? But I thought about that. I was like, even while you're sleeping, what am I doing? I'm working. Even while you're standing there going, please give me patience, I'm working. And here's what's happening to the nation of Israel is they go, God, we're standing here. Where are your promises? He says, I'm working. What can we do? He says, have patience. Can we help? Yeah, you can. You can be faithful where you are. You can trust that I'm at work. And I never stop working. Sun goes up, sun goes down. God is at work. You go to sleep. God is at work. You take a rest. God is at work. God is at work. Through his people and for his people. And what we're about to see as we get into the book of Exodus further is we're going to see God begin to move in some of the most powerful ways that he moves in all of history. The book of Exodus is fun because there are so many amazing miracles, so many amazing ways in which God intervenes. But don't forget that all of that followed hundreds of years of darkness. Have patience. Trust him. He's at work and he's present. You and I are are called like the nation of Israel, called to be a kingdom of priests. We don't always know how God is at work, right? But God is building a kingdom of people to represent him here on the earth and eventually to represent him in eternity. You and I have promises from God through Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what I would say is this, you can know that you have an eternity with God as a part of his kingdom if you will trust that Jesus died for your sin and Jesus rose again and all who believe in Jesus can have eternal life. And if you know Jesus, you are being built into the kind of people who will represent him and worship him so that all of the nations can come to know him. And so we see God's big story because it's written in the book. We see how it ends. 
When the kingdom of God comes from heaven to earth and we live there forever and we go, man, I want those promises. But what we don't see all the time is how God's working in the darkness. In those long stretches of quiet where we often live. And so we trust that he's present. We trust that he's working. Because we know that's always been the case. This is why we go back and we look at Exodus through Deuteronomy. Because we know this has always been the case. We don't know how long it will take for God's final plan to come to fruition. But we know he's not asleep. And so the question this morning for us in the midst of wherever you find yourself. Do you believe that God is with you and God is still working? Quickly as we close, I just I want us to do an exercise. And, and if you're comfortable with this, just, just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but close your eyes for just a moment. And here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to, to think about that thing in your life, that area of your life right now that you say, God, I, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why this isn't turning out the way that I hoped it would turn out. you've got that in your mind, then for just a moment, say, God, but, but I know you're here and I trust you. I, I know you're here and I know you're, you're working. God, let my life just please be a faithful part of your story. Just take a moment and lay that before him. God, we know you're good. Not just because we think it, but because you've told us. God, we know you're here because you've told us, but also because we've experienced you. And God, we know you're working because we read the history of what you've done through your people and you've never stopped working. Lord, let us leave from this place with a new resolve to be faithful where you've placed us. As we close our eyes tonight, I pray we'd sleep in peace. And when we wake up in the night in fear, anxiety, or pain, God, remind us in the quiet that you're there. You're not asleep. And you're not dead. Remind us of your promises. Of the resurrection and life to come in Jesus Christ. And Lord, let us grab on to those promises. Like drowning people would grab on to a life raft in the ocean. Because it's what we have. And so we trust you. Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.